Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're in this series on home life, but the first couple of messages here have been about work life because the two things, actually, it's a two-way street. And I realized as I began to get into this series that if you only touch on one, you're going to miss out on something big. That I, They both affect each other. So um, obviously, as we get into home life, and we're going to get there next week finally, but the, the home home part of home life, but if I just touch on home life, I realize... You know, one of the reasons people's home life is so messed up and they're so exhausted and they're so dried out uh, doesn't just have to do with what we're doing at home. It actually has to do with what we're doing at work. I think most Christians, you know, I, I think one of the biggest obstacles to us doing the things that actually deep inside we actually want to do is that we come home. So it's like this. Most of you, you come here at church on a Sunday morning and, and you get pumped up. We had, a, like, we had just a beautiful worship time this morning. That was amazing. Just incredible. And reading scripture together. And then you hear a message, which hopefully also encourages you a little bit, even when I'm preaching. And then you go home and you're like, I want to be a better person this week, right? I'm going to be a better person, but it's easy to want to be a better person on Sunday because you rested up, you've sung a bit, you've heard a message. And then you spend the afternoon, you know, eating your guts out or taking a nap or whatever it is you do on Sunday to get ready for the next day. And then you get up Monday morning, you still have good intentions, and then you go through a day of work, and you come back, and you can't do any of your good intentions because you're exhausted and stressed. And then you feel bad, and you had all these things you were going to do as a parent, because you went to parenting cell last year with me and LaDawn, and you have all these things like, da, 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 I'm going to be a better parent, and, and you could do those things if you only had to parent from 8 to 10 a.m. in the morning and didn't have to go to work. But that's not when you have to parent. You have to come home from a day of work. And at the end of the day, you're stressed and exhausted. And now your kids drive you crazy. And you don't have the capacity, whether you're single, married, or a parent, you know, the capacity to be the person you want to be. Part of that, so we're going to look at the home life. How do we increase our capacity spiritually, emotionally, all those sorts of things. But part of it is because we don't know what to do at work. And when we come home from work, we're actually just wrecked and there's almost nothing we can change at home that will do anything about that cycle because work is wrecking us. And so in a series on home life, I really want to touch on both because some of the things we do at home will affect who we are at work, but some of the things we do at work and how we view work are going to affect how we are at home. Home life and work life, really, uh, they go hand in hand and they feed off of each other and they feed into each other. So last week, we looked at uh, four things that your work is supposed to be worship, and we looked at four ways, how do you change your work? That's not your, your act of worship to God isn't just your, that little bit of time in the morning we call devotions, but actually your entire day, you can connect your work to something spiritual. Your, your, worship, your work can be worship, and by turning your work into worship, I do not mean going to work and literally saying the name of Jesus out loud all day long or humming worship songs under your breath. We talked about the act of work itself. If you give your best effort and you work with integrity and you put Jesus above, when Jesus and money and success collide, you put the way of Jesus above. And if you know when to stop, you can go and put in a day's work and have it be an act of worship. I want to spend one last message here on work. And I want to show you something really interesting. 
We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, this is a really, really profound verse. It's profound. Okay? But just to give you a little bit of context, what is Paul talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7? Um, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about a bunch of things. They have disagreements and questions and concerns about what does it mean? How do I become a spiritual person? After I become a Christian, how do I be a better Christian? How do I become more spiritual? How do I become closer to God? Essentially is sort of the question. And there's disagreements. Uh, some people think, you know, if I become a Christian and I'm married, but my spouse isn't a Christian, I should divorce my spouse, him or her, in order that I can truly devote myself to Christ. And Paul in this chapter says, absolutely not. Stay in the place that God has you. If you were married before, and then, and then you become a Christian, you don't need to divorce your unsaved spouse to keep being a Christian. You can stay where you were. Okay? He's also talking to people, there was disagreement. Some people thought being single was more spiritual. Other people wondered if getting married was more spiritual. And Paul's whole point in this verse here is, Married or single doesn't have any effect on your spirituality. You can be a single person for Jesus. You can be a married person for Jesus. You can do it all. Stay in a place God has for you. So one of the things Paul is talking about here is marriage. Second thing Paul is talking about is you have Jews and Gentiles. For those of you who are new to church, new to Christianity, a Gentile is just anyone who is not a Jew. That's most of us here today would be in Bible terms, Gentiles. And so there was disagreement. Some people thought once you became a Christian, you had to start observing Jewish cultural observances. And other people thought if you were a Jew and became a Christian, you had to stop observing. Or they were accusing Paul that what he was teaching was that you had to stop observing the Jewish culture and those observances. And Paul's point is, stay in the life God has called you. If you were a Gentile and you became a Christian, you don't have to take on Jewish observances. And if you were a Jew and God called you, by all means, feel free to keep your Jewish culture and keep doing the Jewish observances. You can be a Jewish person for Jesus, or you can be a Gentile person for Jesus. You don't need to change that. You say, well, how does this tie into work? Well, interestingly enough, he also talks about slave and free. If we skip ahead a few verses, verse 21, were you a bondservant when you were called? In other words, were you a slave when you became a Christian? And then he says this, do not be concerned about it. Now, I had a whole piece in this message. Some people look at this verse and they say, oh, look at this. Paul doesn't care about slavery. He thinks slavery isn't okay. The New Testament supports slavery, which is one big pile of bunk. And if you actually have that question, we can have a further conversation after this message because I had to take it out. But Paul's point here is not that he condones the institution of slavery. And by the way, Paul is not some rich white guy writing the Bible. He is a poor Jewish believer who has himself been in chains, been beaten, uh, been mistreated, all of these things, okay? And he's not saying, he's not writing a blog in the 21st century, a social justice blog, which for some reason people nowadays expect that Bible writers 2,000 years ago should have been social justice blog writers of today. There was no blogs, there was no internet, Paul's not writing against the institution of slavery. Slavery is just the reality of his world. And he's writing a letter to slaves. And what's he supposed to tell them? Rise up against your masters so you can all be crucified en masse, which is what the Romans would do to runaway slaves. 
Or is he going to give them advice in their situation, not worried about 21st century social justice sensibilities, and he's going to write to them and he's going to say, you can find meaning and Christ in your job as a slave. That's what Paul is doing, not affirming slavery. In fact, he says there, but if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Anyway, I'm not going to take you on a journey through the New Testament and show you how the New Testament undermines slavery. But anyway, do not be concerned about it. Skip ahead a couple more verses. Verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So whether you are slave or free, whether you are married or single, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you can stay right in that life and you can live that life for Jesus. Okay? I want to show you one more thing because this is more revolutionary than most of us Western Christians really understand. See, the word there for called in verse 17 and verse 24 is Greek word kaleo, and it would be what we in the West would call a spiritual word. We, wouldn't use, like we would think of this as not a everyday, earthy sort of word. It's the same word that's used it, over and over and over again in the New Testament dozens of times about salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.9 uh, says that you were called kaleo into fellowship with Jesus. Romans 8.30, you were called kaleo into ju- uh, salvation and justification. First uh, Peter 2 verse 9, you were called kaleo out of darkness into light. I could give many, many examples. This is a word that is often used in the New Testament for God's, what we would call, now remember in this series, I'm trying to get rid of that word spiritual, that it actually means what we in the West think it means. But it's used of the calling of God on our lives in that spiritual sense that we use it. Yet here, Paul does not use it in any sort of spiritual sense. He talks about everyday things. And he says, your life where it's at, whether you're married or single, whether you're free or slave, whether you're Jew or Gentile, that regular everyday mundane life that you live is a calling from God. Now, the reason that is revolutionary is because when we think of the word calling, we tend to think of one of two things, or maybe the two of them together. We almost always think of ministry. And part of that is my fault and on behalf of pastors and, and the fault of pastors everywhere, because as pastors, we like to talk about our callings. I've done that too, and I do that too. And so all of you regular people out there, I use that very sarcastically, okay? That would be very awkward. But all of you regular people out there kind of just sit in the services, you listen to pastors every week, and these pastors talk about when I was called into the ministry. And we hear missionaries, and we read books of missionaries who walked away from everything and went into the third world. And these are amazing stories, by the way. I love those stories. Very encouraging. But they were called into missions. And so usually when we think of the word calling, we think of people who are called into missions, people who are called into ministry, people who are called to be a pastor. But actually, according to these verses here, actually any job or station in life could be a calling. Have you ever heard someone say, I was called to be a janitor? Now, as soon as I say that, we kind of giggle because we go, that doesn't sound right. Why doesn't it sound right? Why can't janitor be a calling? Why can't bus driver be a calling? Why can't construction worker be a calling? 
does God only call people into ministry or kaleo, does he call us into every sphere, different sphere of life? See, here's one of the things that I see in our younger generation coming up in this culture. Well, and, it was my, and it's my generation too, for sure. We have this idea that calling has to be something epic. Young people want to be called to something great. And that's wonderful if you actually understand what great means. But usually what we mean by great is to be a world changer, to do some really grandiose big things. There are 7 billion people on the earth. Do you think it is possible for God to give every single one of 7 billion people a grandiose calling to change the world? Just to help you along, the answer is no. Because in order for any person to change the world, there's got to be a whole big group of people who are doing the little things to keep those people alive. Most of us, maybe greatness in God's eyes is not in the great things. Maybe greatness in God's eyes is in the small things. Maybe greatness in God's eyes is a construction worker getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to build this house or building to the best of my ability I'm going to do it efficiently, and I'm going to build something that is quality that's going to last. Maybe, maybe greatness in God's eyes is a banker getting up in the morning. You say, what? Banking can't be a calling, right? A lot of people today, anytime you read the, the, the news media, bankers are always greedy people. Let me ask you something. If all the bankers quit their jobs tomorrow, where do the loans come that keep the small business owners employing all the people who work in this country that keep us fed and keep us clothed. Gone. I sure hope those greedy bankers keep going to work tomorrow. <laughs> what if greatness is a banker getting up in the morning and doing his best to give loans to the people who need them so people can be employed and stuff can be made? Aren't you glad for them? Maybe that's greatness. Maybe greatness isn't aspiring to be prime minister of the country, but aspiring to be a town councillor and try to make your community a better place to live. Maybe greatness in God's eyes is in the small things. Maybe any job can be a kaleo calling. I want to show you something profound in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6. Verse 9, pray then like this, this is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, before I get to the point I really want to show you, which is really, really neat, let's just think about this prayer so far for just a moment. Because I love, I mean, I love reading books on prayer. I've read many of them in my life. And books on prayer can be super motivating and inspiring and help me in my prayer life. Many of you have read good books on prayer. Don't stop reading books on prayer. This is not a criticism of books on prayer. But I just want to make sure that we know who the expert on prayer is. Who's the expert on prayer? The one we're praying to. I want you to notice how simple, how down-to-earth, and how mundane this prayer is. Have you ever thought about what the Lord's Prayer isn't? Have you ever noticed that Jesus does not say, when you pray, pray like this. Oh, Father, I pray for the advancement of world missions. I'm not making fun of that prayer, by the way. And we pray those kinds of things at our prayer summits. And when we come together corporately, we pray for 
you know, the accomplishment of the Great Commission and church renewal, we pray for nations to come to know the Lord. And if you feel led by the Spirit to pray those big prayers in your prayer time, do that. That's the Holy Spirit. I just want you to notice that's not what Jesus teaches us to pray every day. When we human beings go to God, very few of us have any ability to go to God with the great things of this world. The great things of this world are too great for us. He says, when you come to me, just be normal. Give us this day our daily bread. Now let's think about that prayer request for a moment, shall we? Give us this day our daily bread. So, you know, somewhere around 2 billion people in the world call themselves Christians. No, I mean, we don't pray, none of us praise this all the time, but many of our prayers consist of this, meet my daily needs, help me pay the bills, give us this day our daily bread. Have you ever thought to yourself, how does God answer this prayer? You ever thought about that? Give us this day our daily bread. How does God answer this prayer for you? How does he answer this prayer every day for 2 billion people? It's actually a big prayer request. How does God answer this prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Has any of you, and you can raise your hand because no doubt it has happened somewhere in the world at some point in history. I don't doubt it. God does miracles and I love those. Have prayed, give us this day our daily bread or something like it, and poof, a basket of cash or a loaf of bread on your table. Now, God created the universe with a word. If he wanted to answer your prayer like that, it would be easy. But I'm betting that most of you have not had him answer that way. I don't, I don't doubt he can, and I don't doubt he sometimes does. I love that. He has many creative ways of doing things. I'm just thinking about the primary way, 99% of the time. How does God answer this prayer for you and billions of other people? Keep that in mind for just a moment. Let's look at one other verse. Psalm 145, 15 to 16. David praises God and he says this, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. Matthew 6, pray for your daily bread. Psalm 145, praise God because he gives you your daily bread. He takes care of you. You're here today. He has cared for you another day. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now, how does God do this? Very few of us will ever get an opportunity to even know anyone where he does this in that sort of miraculous mode of poof. It, something just appears. How does God answer these prayers and how does he provide for humankind every single day? I'll tell you in one word, work. <laughs> You're like, that's it? What were you expecting? How does God, now it's on two different levels. First level is obvious. Oh, that's kind of obvious. He gives you work. Yeah, I mean, if God wanted you, I mean, Martin Luther talked about this a few hundred years ago. He said, if God wanted to, he could just zap. Well, he didn't use zap, but he could just provide you with stuff out of nothing. But he says he doesn't. He sends you out into the field to plow. When you pray, give us this day our daily bread, you know what God provides for you? He provides work. But it goes way deeper than that, because that's just on a shallow level. We wouldn't want to stop there. The way God answers this for billions of people is way bigger. You're never going to think about this prayer the same ever again, okay? Because he doesn't just provide you with work so you can go to the store and buy a loaf of bread. Have you ever thought, 
How did that loaf of bread get onto the shelf so that I could get a job so I could go there and buy the loaf of bread? Well, someone months ago, months ago, some farmer somewhere, had to plant wheat, okay, GMO-free or full of GMOs. Those are my favorite. I love getting my GMOs. (laughs) My vitamins. So some farmer somewhere had to plant wheat, and then he had to spend the summer, blood, sweat, and tears, fighting off pests and weeds and, and all that sort of stuff, and then and he had to complain about the weather nonstop. It was too rainy. It was not rainy enough. It was too hot. It was too cool. Because that's just part, it's part of the job description, right? And then at the end of the year, he had to get into a tractor, and he had to harvest that whole field. But it's still not done. That's still not a loaf of bread on the shelf. Someone else had to take that flour and, or that wheat and grind it into flour. And then some baker somewhere or, you know, some huge industrial bakery or whatever had to come and a bunch of people had to work and they had to take that flour and turn it into bread. And then someone had to get into a truck somewhere and drive that bread to the shelf so that God could provide a job for you so you could afford to go to the grocery store and buy the loaf of bread. Do you see how many people have to go to work for God to feed you your daily bread? He has to put hundreds, maybe even thousands of people to work. Now you say, oh, that's an exaggeration. You didn't name me hundreds of thousands. You named a farmer. You named a grinder. You named a baker. You named a trucker. Maybe some grocery store people. That doesn't sound like hundreds of thousands. Well, let's mine this a little deeper, shall we? That trucker, let's just take the trucking part of it. That trucker that got in a truck to drive the loaf of bread to the store so that God could give you a job that would provide for you to go to the store and buy the loaf of bread, give us his day or daily bread. How does he have a truck to drive? Somewhere, a whole bunch of people have to mine the raw materials to make the plastic and the metal. Engineers have to design wires and engine components. A whole bunch of other people have to put these components together in engines. Elsewhere, a cab, people have to build tires. Thousands of men and women have to get up every morning and want to be construction workers because without them building roads, we have no roads. If every construction worker in the world tomorrow gets up and says, you know what, my job is not spiritual enough, it's not epic enough, I need to go follow my real calling, you know what happens? We have no more roads, we have no more loaves of bread in the grocery store, and we can all die in our spiritual callings. (laughs) That's true. So someone's got to make the roads. Someone's got to make the trucks. I mean, you just go on and on and on. Give us our daily bread is this epic prayer. Put millions of people to work. Give millions of human beings different gifts and abilities and talents so they can work, so that I can work, so that I can eat and live. You know the only difference? There's only one difference. How did And God set it up this way. He didn't want to do it by magic. The entire human race, how are 7 billion people fed? And unfortunately, because of the brokenness of this world, not all of them get fed every day. But how are the billions of people on this earth fed every day? Through an almost unimaginable mountain of work done by billions of people. The only difference between us living almost like animals, barely subsisting, 
living in caves, trying to make fires by scratching rocks together and eking out an existence out of plant roots, and us having civilization as we know it today with food and shelter and roads and electricity and things that help us to be more human, like music and education and reading and creep and all these sorts of things. The only difference between us living in caves off of plant roots and civilization as we know it, work. It's work. So how on earth do us Christians in the West ever get this idea that the only thing you can be called to is to be called to be a pastor? How did we ever get this idea that the person who's the most spiritual is the one who's a missionary who takes the loaf of bread to the poor people in the inner city and, and feeds the poor bread? Now, first of all, amen. I believe we need people called to be missionaries to take the bread to the poor. We believe in feeding the poor. That's why we're in Uganda. That's why we give out a couple thousand food hampers in this community every single year to needy families. We believe in feeding the poor. I love it. But how did we ever get the idea that the one who goes into the inner city to bring the loaf of bread to the poor is more spiritual than the trucker who makes it possible for there to be bread on the shelves for a missionary to bring to the poor? If all the truckers quit tomorrow, within a week, there's no more loaves of bread on the shelf. There's no bread for any missionary to take to the poor. So which do you need more, the missionary or the trucker? You need them both. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, stay in the life to which you were, Kaleo, called. There's about three and a half million truck drivers. I read this a couple days ago. Really neat. In the United States. There's about three alone, so I don't know, so proportionally to Canada, it'll be whatever. But in the United States alone, there's about three and a half million truck drivers. That means in order to keep everybody fed and shelter and electricity and keep everything going the way that it goes in the United States and in our country, you actually need three and a half million people to be truck drivers. That means in order to provide for us here in North America, there have to be a few million people. That's a lot more than the number of pastors and politicians. Thank heavens. Amen? <laughs> that means three and a half million people have to be born, and God actually has to call them to be truckers. And without them fulfilling that calling, there is no church. There is no grocery store. There is no feeding the poor. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, this is my rule in the churches. You don't have to leave what you're doing to be a better Christian. You should be a better Christian in what you're doing because the world needs you to keep doing what you're doing. Heavens knows we're not all called to some big epic calling. We need to find greatness in the small things because it's the small things that keep us all alive. Where am I? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you want to love, we know, you know, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know one of the most practical things you can do to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your fellow man, go to work. It's actually what makes a difference. If we all stop going to work tomorrow, there's going to be a lot of suffering in this world. You want to alleviate suffering? Go to work. That's actually what God calls us to go to work. Now, the question is, why is this so hard? 
So on the one hand, we can look at the big picture and we can see that work is how God provides for humanity. And work is one of the most practical things we can do to love our fellow man. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do other things. Don't take this as an excuse now. Well, now I don't need to feed the poor and I don't need to do service and I don't need to reach out to my neighbors because I'm working, I'm already loving them. No, no, we need, we need to love people in some of those sort of conscious you know, ways. But don't ever forget that one of the biggest differences you make in the world is just go to work. So it keeps everything going. The question is, why is this so hard? Why has work become so hard? Because many of us do not experience this sort of sense of satisfaction. Most of us do not come home from work and go, wow, I just helped to feed the world today. We don't come home from work and go, oh my goodness, I just love my fellow man and I love my job today. Many people dread work. Many people hate work. Many people find much stress and pain at work. So why is it so hard? If we need work, and if work is at the core of how God has made us human, why is work so hard? And the Bible has the answer for that too. And the answer is because sin has broken everything. And in particular, sin has broken work. I don't know how many of you have ever noticed this before, but if you read the curse, as God describes the curse to Adam in Genesis 3, when he describes the effects of what sin is going to do to Adam, the entire curse that he describes is all about work. Look at this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now, I'm going to show you one more verse, but I just want you to notice two things. I've got them underlined there, pain, thorn, and thistles. The moment sin entered into the world, it broke us as individuals. It also broke the system, and one of the biggest impacts was at work. When God created the earth, there was work. Work is not the result of sin. Pain in work is the result of sin. When Jesus comes back to earth, by the way, if you think we're going to be sitting in hammocks singing to Jesus for the rest of eternity, that's not what we're doing. And how boring would that be anyway? You weren't made to just sing. And some of you, I say amen. <laughs> right? But you weren't made to just sing. That's why we don't just sing here on earth. You were made to work, and you're going to work in eternity. But some of you are really depressed about that. Oh my goodness, I've spent my whole life trying to get to a place where I don't have to work. Whoops. <laughs> you were made to work. And when God created the earth, he made work and he made it good. But without sin, I'll tell you what the experience of work would have been. It would have been very different. You would have gone to work and you would have accomplished things that blessed your fellow man, that exactly tied in with how you were created, your gifting, your talents, your abilities, your unique personality. And you would have accomplished things that made the world a better place. And you would have done things that loved your fellow man, and you would, your work would have been fulfilling. You would have come back tired. Sleep also, by the way, is not a result of sin. Some people think, you know, sleep is a result of sin. Have you ever actually fell asleep? It's like the most wonderful thing. <laughs> have you ever tried not sleeping? That's a curse, okay? <laughs> Sleeping is good. You would have come home. Without sin, you would have come home physically tired, maybe, but not mentally and emotionally exhausted. You would have come home feeling fulfilled. Ah, 
Let's connect now. Relationships, joy. What an amazing day at work. I accomplish things that make a difference in the world. But because of sin, pain entered in. And instead of fulfillment, work became painful. By the way, this is true of all jobs, even ministry jobs, even my job, past whatever, whether you work at a church, outside the church, this is true of all work. It's all broken because we're broken. Pain entered your job. And the, another thing that entered was thorns and thistles. Without sin, Adam's work on the farm would have all had to do with improving his crop, coming up with new and better methods for getting better yields and better kinds of crops and all this sort of stuff and better methods of harvesting and more. Every year, he would have improved and improved and improved because he could have spent all his time and effort improving the crop. But because of sin, work became broken and now thorns and thistles enter the equation. So now instead of spending all your time and effort and resources raising a crop, you spend a whole ton of your resources and time fighting against things just to keep them from taking your crop. And it became painful. Now, this isn't just in farming. This is in all of our work. You know, you come out of university and you have, you know, these idealistic ideas and God loves it because he made us as humans to want to do good things. So you have these ideas and you get into a job and you're like, oh, I'm going to make such a difference in people's lives. And then you show up at work and there's all these obstacles that keep you from doing all the good things you want to do. I mean, you have dreams for your business. You have dreams for your job. Oh, I'm going to be. And then there's this person did that and this person did that. And oh, you have all these extra tasks you have to do that keep you from doing the tasks you want to accomplish. And you're putting this fire out and you're putting that fire out. And you're coming home exhausted. And after a couple of years, you're like, I'm not getting any of the amazing things done that I wanted to get done. That's because of sin. The good things you want to do sometimes take many, 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 many more years than we want them to take. Sometimes we can't achieve them at all. Sometimes we can only get a piece of them because of the thorns and thistles. Sin has broken our work. And it says this, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to work hard. It's not going to be so fulfilling. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be wonderful. It's going to be hard, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, two things. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? Well, the first thing, and I have to make sure I say the first thing strongly, because if I just say the second thing, we're going to have all kinds of wacky stuff going on. But the first thing is, we work anyway. In fact, we'll put in there, we work hard anyway. Sin has broken work, but we were still made to work. And give us this day our daily bread is still answered across the whole world by work. So just because it's hard doesn't mean, if we're Christians, that we just get to check out. Doesn't mean I'm going to sit around after university in my parents' basement for years and years and years waiting for the perfect job. Not that anybody these days would ever do such a thing. <laughs> I'm going to wait for the perfect job that exactly fits my talents and abilities because God has this great calling for me and God says, I've got a really great calling for you. Just start working. Because that is a great calling. Just go to work. We work hard anyway. If you can work, you should work. And I say it that way because you might be here today and you can't work. 
This is, don't take this message as guilt. You might have physical reasons, emotional reasons, mental reasons, depression, anxiety, various things. There might be things that keep you from being able to work. If you can't work, then as a church, we want to be here for you. We live in a country that is not going to let you starve. These are all good things. Don't feel bad. Worship God where you're at. But if you can work, and we all have different capacities, some people have less. I think of my grandma Dirksen. She's in this service. I didn't ask her for permission to, serve, to say this, but it's all good, Granny. My grandma Dirksen is, you know, she looks like she's in her 60s, but she's really in her mid-80s. Throw that in there. <laughs> of course, she's been retired for a long time, right? She doesn't work for a paycheck anymore, but she still works. She's here every Thursday morning in the kitchen serving because she is a brilliant, she's a brilliant baker. And yes, I am trying to weasel another pie out of her shortly. <laughs> Shamelessly. She's a brilliant baker, and she comes here and she's your gifts and abilities. I know she does that other times during the week at the apartment where she lives. She continues to use her gifts at the capacity she has to continue to serve and work. It's maybe not work for a paycheck, but it's still work. You know, you might be here today and you're a student. You don't get a paycheck, but your work is be a student. You might be a stay-at-home mom here today, and you don't think that this applies to you, but the, <laughs> you do work. You just don't get paid. And your work will stress you out, and I have no answers for that other than just survive. Okay? But this is, so no, this is not about guilty, but we work hard anyway. In the absence of a job that fits your talents and abilities and skills, work anyway. Get a job, that's your first step. Be a Christian, get a job. And then work, and then see if you can find something that's more suited to who you are. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay? Now, you don't put that on a political slogan these days, you're not going to get elected. <laughs> and Paul wouldn't want you to put it on a political slogan nowadays. Okay? He's not saying, I wish everybody who didn't work would starve. He's talking about church resources here. Because in those days, the Roman Empire didn't have a social safety net that if you didn't have a job, they would feed you. So the church took care of the poor. We continue to do that here at this church. Like I said before, we feed hundreds of families every year here in this community. Okay? But in those days, that church was keeping alive the widows and orphans and these sorts of things with the resources. And Paul's point is, don't you dare take those resources that are so precious to those people who need them and give them to someone who actually could provide for themselves. If you can provide for yourself, you should. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Verse 12, now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. This is part of discipleship. What it means to be a Christian is to work if you can. Ephesians 4.28, our goal as Christians, and I could show you verse after verse after verse. I'll just show you one more in this section here. Ephesians 4.28, we should want to work so that we are not a burden to the church or to the government. If we can work as Christians, our desire should be to be a burden to no one, but to work so that we can give to others. 
Ephesians 4.28 says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him what? Labor. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Whether you like your job or not, part of following Jesus is work hard anyway. So that's number one. Here's the second thing. Now that we have number one firmly in mind, and we will not release number one, and when in doubt, go back to number one, here's number two. If, underline if, if you can find work that matches your gifts, abilities, passions, you should do that. And I'll tell you why. Because God is most glorified and your fellow man is most blessed and the world is most help when you take the unique way that God has made you and you use that at your work. And you use that at your work. Okay? Now, you notice the if there. There's a couple different reasons why people don't work in jobs that use their gifts, talents, and abilities. The first one is they just don't have any opportunity in this sin-broken world. If there was no sin, when Jesus comes back, you and I will work for eternity with lots of rest and lots of play, but there'll be lots of work, but we will all work exactly because God made you unique, and you're going to do something that matches that uniqueness. It's going to be amazing. In this sin-broken world, Christina, if you can put that up there, you might not have opportunity. You might not have opportunity to do that. There might be reasons. High unemployment. You might live in a third world country where you're just trying to get by. Many different human beings. Just, or in the community you live, there just might not be, in this sin-broken world, an opportunity to use the gifts God's given you in a job. In that case, refer back to number one, work hard anyway. But there are a second group of reasons why people in our culture don't work in their gifts, talents, and abilities. And these are reasons we have control over, and these are reasons we should shy away from. Some people don't work in their area of giftedness the way God has made them because of things like wanting prestige, feeling guilty, trying to be like somebody else, or greed. Right? I mean, if you have two options in front of you, let's just think of it this way. And one job is a job that pays less, but it will actually take care of you and pay the bills. Okay? And it's a job you can feel good about. Okay? And you can do that job. And you have job number B, which will pay you many thousands of dollars more a year and will have more prestige when you go to your family gatherings at Christmas and Easter. You know what most of our world thinks? They might not say it in the movies, but how most of us think in our culture? Obviously, you take the one with more money. That's a bigger opportunity. There's more prestige. You can hold your head high. This one, nobody will think you're that much of anything. But I want you to fast forward this decision five or ten years, and let's see if the extra thousands of dollars, the bigger bank account and the bigger house, and the prestige at your family gatherings is actually worth it. When you fast forward 10 years and you see yourself coming home from work every day, and yeah, you're making more money, but every day you come home exhausted from trying to do something that doesn't match who you are. Work is killing you because you're having to administrate when you're not an administrator. 
You're having to manage when you're not a manager. You're having to build when you're not a builder. And you come home with no capacity left to build into your spouse. You're a bear with your kids. I've heard testimonies recently of people who made choices like this, and then they are rotten to their kids. And then they feel guilty because they're not bad people. And they try to pray more, but all the prayer in the world isn't helping that much when they come home from work totally stressed out every day. It's not because they're not because they're bad people and they want to be bad at home. It's because they don't fit where they spend most of their life, which is work. Now, if that's all you can do in order to provide for your family, you've got to do the best you can. And God will have to give you special grace in that. But a lot of us actually don't have to do those high-stress jobs. We do them because we're afraid of what we'll look like if we don't, and it just feels like the right thing to do to go higher up on the ladder. Some of you, you grew up in a home where your dad was a successful businessman. So you grew up thinking the only people who are anything in this world are people who can be successful in business. And so you go into business. Now, some of you, your dad was a successful businessman, and you were wired to be a successful businessman, and you go there and you can be successful. Some of you were not wired to be your dad. And do you know, if God wanted the world to have a second one of your dad, he would have cloned him. And if God wanted there to be a second one of you, by the way, for those of us who are dads, I think some of the worst manipulation in the world is parent-to-child manipulation. Trying to make our kids like us instead of like Jesus. And using money and power and all kinds of things, even if we don't do it consciously, but we use it subconsciously to try and influence them. You can't be your dad. So your dad might have been successful at that, but maybe you're just wired to be a teacher. Or maybe, I actually talked uh, to a couple of different people yesterday after the services. One man came and shared with me. He said, that message so spoke to me. He said, I was called to be a janitor 30 years ago. I'm at the same school. I've had opportunities to take other jobs. And he said, I just love being a janitor. Wow. Guess what? The man's happy and he has a happy family. How many of you would trade a couple hundred thousand dollars for that? Another man came to me after the second service. And you know what he said? He said, I had a job that just about killed me, but it paid $75,000 a year. He said, I was making a lot of money for me, he said, and it was really good. And he said, I now have a job, and he had the biggest grin on his face. He said, I've had this job for a while now. He says, it pays me less than half of that. He was just giddy with happiness. He said, I've never been so happy. I have no stress. I'd never want to go back. Now, some of you were made for stress. You don't want to live that way because God wired you for more stress. So take those. I'm not saying the high-stress jobs are bad. I'm saying, why would you choose your job? By the way, here's something else I've observed. And if Solomon was writing now, this would be in, the, in, the, in Ecclesiastes. Solomon would say, something I have observed. <laughs> that people are promoted to manager who should not be promoted to manager. <laughs> you know what's something I've observed? Someone does a really good job at something. They're really, really good at a task that they do. So then the manager, and they do it for a bunch of years, and they're faithful. So then the leader of the organization says, you know what? Promotion time, I'm going to make you a manager. And of course, the person thinks, well, that's a promotion. It looks good. It comes with more pay. Obviously, the answer on both sides here is yes. 
Well, if you're wired to be a manager, but how many of you have seen people who are really good at a task are terrible as managers? That's not anything bad on them. It's how I wired them. Now look at who you all hurt when you make someone who shouldn't be a manager and when they say yes to being a manager, who shouldn't be a manager? Ten years down the road, or even six months in some cases, I've heard people complain about this, and it's like, I make more money, but I just want to go back. I just want to do something different because I don't like being in charge of people. And guess who else's life really stinks? The people who work for this new manager. He was a good person, but he's a terrible manager. So why would we say yes to work just based on prestige? Why would we say yes to work just because it's more money? By the way, let me tell you something. Wanting to make more money is not greedy. End of sentence. You know what greed is? Greed is not wanting to make more money. Greed is making poor choices in order to make more money. God has made some of you to worship him by making money. Make money. And you can do it in godly, generous, loving ways. Do it. But when you make poor choices in order to make more money, that's greed. So why would we change our work in order just to have prestige or more money? We need to provide for ourselves and others. That's give us a stay our daily bread. But then if we can, we should work a job we can succeed at. And if we do that, we're also going to succeed at home because we're not going to come home dead every day. What we really need is a drastic change in our view of Work, view your job as two things, an act of worship to God and an act of service to your fellow man, not something that builds up your brand. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and let's just listen to the Lord for a moment and ask him for his perspective on our work. Lord Jesus, so many of us feel stuck at work. For those people here today who are stuck in really difficult work situations, I pray a special grace. If they need to move, open some doors. If they just need to have a radical change of mindset, help them do that. Help us make choices that give you glory. Let the Holy Spirit just speak to you for a moment about your work.